Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And Jerry's not here, but we are here live in beautiful Los Angeles, California for the Los Angeles Podcast Festival. Very nice. This crowd is massive. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds massive. Yeah. You were asking for it, too. Yep. I find that when you turn and point a microphone at oh, people's man. face. Just drives them crazy. Yeah, they make noise. It's a good old trick. Walter Cronkite taught us that. It's <laughs> <laughs> the first person I could think of. <laughs> the first guy with the microphone that came to mind? Yep. So, uh... How you feeling, man? You feeling good? I'm good. I'm a little sleepy. Uh, but I'm not supposed to be honest. I'm supposed to say, I feel great and charged, right? right. I'm a little sleepy. <laughs> so if I'm not funny, that's why. Yeah. Uh, we've got the, we, we have a thing, Chuck and I have a thing, literally now, because we've encountered so many of them, of these kind of tablecloths that are like pantyhose. And to get anywhere like near the microphone. table. Right. Yeah. But made of, like, nylons, right? So you have to be, like, right up on it. And it has this weird kind of give. Yeah. But so it's a little off-putting. kind of feels a little, like, sexy. Right. <laughs> so if we're, like, sitting here grimacing here. during the show... It's, it's a little weird. It's, it's this thing. I'm all over the place emotionally right now. <laughs> right. You're in a tailspin. You so, ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So um, we're talking today about Monty Python, right? And if you'll, if you'll go back with us, we're going to head back to Swing in London in 1968, where uh, a group of uh, English boys got together and started a, a little television show called How to Irritate People. And it was actually a television special. And uh, it was hosted by a guy named John Cleese. Yeah, written by a guy named John Cleese and a dude named Graham Chapman. And um, also starring a guy named Michael Palin. And those were the only three members of what would become Monty Python. Did right. I spoil it already? <laughs> uh, but it was written by Cleese and Chapman, and the sort of the goal here was to do a special and to get Americans primed for this thing called British humor and sell it to American <laughs> audiences. But um, it sort of failed in that respect. It didn't generate a lot of interest among American, uh, I guess, TV executives? Sure. Yeah. Well, it was, it was funny-ish. You know, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't quite Monty Python, but you could see the seeds in it, right? It was starting to grow from this. And about a year later, um, the BBC went to John Cleese and said, hey, we like what you did with how to irritate people. Do you want your own show? And Cleese said, sure, I'd love to have a show, but I don't want to be the star. I want to be part of an ensemble. And the BBC said, go put your team together. So, uh, he spoke into his wristwatch and said, Python, assemble. <laughs> and they all came from different corners of the earth and came together and formed a giant robot with a sword. <laughs> the first time Monty Python ever came together. That would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, so he said, all right, I have this friend, Graham Chapman, and we went to Cambridge together. He's my writing partner. He's definitely in. And we just worked with this guy, Michael Palin. He's really funny, so he should be in. Uh, but he was doing a show called uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set. It was a kid show. And uh, Cleese was a fan of that. And he said, well, that's wonderful. We would love you to come on. He says, well, I have these other guys on the show I really like working with. So if you want me, you have to take this Welshman named Terry Jones and uh, this other guy named Eric Idle and this other weird-looking American. And that's this weird-looking weird, weird all around. Weird, Named Terry Gilliam. And Cleese was game, and he said, fine, let's just get all of us together. And then there were six. Yep. So they uh, they came together, and Terry Gilliam was definitely the odd man out. He was from Minnesota. Right? Yeah. Um, the other five had gone to what's called... Um, Oxbridge, right? Oxford and Cambridge? Yeah. Um, where they kind of have like a lockdown on TV writing in the UK. So if you went to Cambridge or you went to Oxford and you want to get into TV writing, especially TV comedy writing, um, that's a pretty good place to start out. Yeah, like here in America, it's uh, Rutgers, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or San Jose State. I can't ever always get those two confused. Um, no, of course, it's Harvard. Everyone knows that. Um, but, yeah, over there it's Cambridge and Oxford. And uh, it turns out if you go to one of those schools, you're probably a pretty smart, clever person, mm-hmm. which is a good start if you want to be the world's greatest comedy troupe of all time in Chuck's opinion. Is that all right? Can yeah, I go ahead and say that? I think you can share your opinion on this one. We probably so, won't get any angry listener right. mail on that. How could you say that? Right. You should uh, help homeless people. How dare you say that? But <laughs> I do agree. Monty Python's pretty great. You should probably explain that oh, weird oh, comment. Yes. We did a well. We did an episode on on homelessness, and we released it around Thanksgiving or Christmas to really kind of like stick it in people's <laughs> heart, right? Yeah. Our position was that you should help homeless people. Yeah. And, I mean, we took a stance on that. Yeah. And we got probably more angry listener mail than we've gotten for any other episode we've yeah. ever released. Pretty much. About Very like, disheartening. Like, homeless people can all go to hell. We don't, you know, you shouldn't be telling people they should give them money or yeah. all sorts of stuff. They was, made decisions that led to that. Right. They got what's coming to them. <laughs> so, uh, but, but everyone agrees Monty Python's great. <laughs> <laughs> that was the overall point. So uh, they were divided up into, sort of naturally divided into writing teams. Um, they already had Cleese and Chapman, who had known each other. And uh, Michael Palin and Terry Jones worked together. Uh, Eric Idle was the lone wolf. He wrote by himself. And Terry Gilliam was, has always been in his own world doing his animation. So he was sort of in his own space as well. Right. So they were getting primed and ready. And uh, the BBC said, all right, we'll give you a run of 13 half-hour episodes. And... Um, and by the way, I've spent the past two weeks nonstop watching Flying Circus. Mm-hmm. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like when your job is to sit around and watch Monty Python and then come and talk about it live, you're, you're doing pretty well in life. Mm-hmm. So uh, very lucky guy. And um, so they had to come up with a name. And um, Flying Circus was kind of always part of it. And the BBC, as legend goes, supposedly even said, guys, we've already printed, except they said it with a cool accent, um, <laughs> we printed Flying Circus already, so you can't change that part, but you need to, you know, if you have a front to that, then think of it quick. Right. And uh, I think Cleese said, eh, what about a python, like something kind of slimy and weird. Uh, so they said python, and then apparently Monty, Monty, is just like sort of an English like guy in the pub would be Monty, just sort of a tired English thing. Like so, uh, like Todd here in America. Yeah. So Monty Python was born. They liked the ring of it. It literally means nothing. There's no significance right. other than they just thought it sounded cool. Yeah, and they had other other ideas besides um, Monty Python's Flying Circus first, too. They had a horse, a spoon, and a basin. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Owl stretching time. I love that. Uh, the toad elevating moment. <laughs> uh, bum wacket, buzzard, stubble, and boot. I think I think Monty Python's Flying Circus was the best of the bunch. Well, sure. and then they they had a couple of things before Flying Circus. Even E. L. Moist's Flying Circus, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Will Will Strangler's <laughs> Flying Circus, which that's pretty good too. Yeah, but that sounds too legit. Right. Like everyone would be like, "Who's yeah, Will Strangler? Who's Will Strangler?" Right. right. But then, you know, once you know it is Monty Python, you can't imagine anything else. Right? It's like if our show was called, I don't know, The Explainerators. <laughs> it's actually not bad. <laughs> Jot that down. Uh, sorry, where are we? I got lost with The Explainerators. I went to a place. <laughs> so, you're like, hmm. So uh, if you ever want to get confused, uh, research British television because they don't call seasons seasons, they call them series, right? So Monty Python had their first series, and then the next year they had their second series. And I'm like, what is this person talking about? <laughs> and then I finally looked it up after like a couple days. Did you really not know that until recently? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I mean, like, I knew from I knew from context what they were talking about, but it was kind of confusing because by the time they get to the fourth series, they actually changed the name right to just Monty Python. That's what got me. Oh, sure. Right? So they so they had they actually had four seasons, and the first season it was pretty much what you would expect, right? This was really, really brand new, cutting edge stuff, and they actually. We're not the first to really kind of experiment with sketch comedy. There was another show um, called Q5 that was done by a guy named Spike Milligan, who was like this legendary radio, surreal, comedic 
genius, right? Yeah. And um, they they followed on the footsteps of of Q5, which had started just a few years before Flying Circus. But these guys like took it to a whole other level. And the BBC had no idea what they had on their hands, so they would shuffle it around late at night. Some some weeks they would just like not show it at all. Some entire regions of the UK didn't receive it. Um, it was just treated. Pretty pretty poorly. Yeah, and, and the deal with Q5, you can go watch some of this on YouTube. It's really good. And actually, the Pythons were kind of upset because when they saw Q5, they're like, well, "Man, it's uh, it's being done. Like that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take comedy and give people something unexpected and turn it on its ear and subvert it and basically be weird." And so I went and looked up a little bit of Q5, and um, the the one skit that I saw was literally like. 15 seconds long, but it gives you a really good idea of what Spike Milligan was doing. And it just opens on a shot of a man with a, a Mona Lisa paint by numbers. So half of it is finished, half of it has the big white areas with the little numbers in there. And I think, well, that's, that's funny. That's the joke. And so, you know, the guy goes to paint and he puts uh, on the canvas, he paints another white section and writes a number. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it got me. I was yeah. like, man, I didn't see it coming. That's pretty good. So that's what Spike Milligan was doing, and that's what Python was kind of shooting for, was just to do something uh, that people hadn't seen. Right. Yeah. So even though they were not being treated well, there wasn't a lot of marketing or PR or whatever behind it, um, it still kind of developed a bit of a cult following, like word-of-mouth following um, among I would guess people taking acid in the 60s in London, you know? Yeah, it was 1969. It sure. was uh, in color, which was kind of a different thing. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah, especially when you think about Terry Gilliam's uh, animations, you know, like to see that in black and white. It'd still be great, but to see it in color late at night on acid right. must have been something else. Sure. <laughs> uh, so if you watched Flying Circus, I mean, did anyone ever watch these episodes at all? They're all on YouTube. I encourage you. Like They have all 50, I think, 45 episodes on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, 45. Uh, and it's, it's really amazing. Like when you, when you watch it, you see the seeds of everything from like Mr. Show uh, to Tenacious D to Kids in the Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Children's Hospital would not be a TV show if it wasn't for Monty Python and Flying Circus. Right. Like this sort of absurdist silliness. Uh, sometimes they'd make a statement. Sometimes it was... Physical comedy, sometimes it was clever wordplay. Uh, it was really all over the map with what they were doing. Right. Um, and as we'll see, they really kind of permeated pop culture, as everybody knows. But like a lot of this stuff was just like a one-off thing, like the Spanish Inquisition. Everybody knows the Spanish Inquisition, right? No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> um, and... They were on one episode. That just took place on one episode in season two. And yet it's like basically one of the backbones of like comedy pop culture. And, and that's a really good point about, um, Monty Python that they, they were just packing episodes with great idea after great idea and like basically zero filler. Uh, and that was definitely part of one of the reasons why they were the seeds that grew all of these other things, too. Yeah, and one of the reasons why they're uh, often called the Beatles of comedy, uh, because they weren't together that long, but their ratio of like great material to stuff. And, you know, you watch, I guess like Saturday Night Live is probably the standard in the United States for years. And half of those sketches each week aren't great, you know? Yeah. Like, Let's be honest. That's what sketch comedy is. It's like a risk. You're throwing it out there. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But when you look at Flying Circus and like the Beatles, like their ratio of great, great stuff to things that didn't quite work was just astounding. Yeah. It was amazing. Right. You? Sure. (laughs) So uh, one of the other hallmarks of Monty Python is that they played almost every character amongst themselves. Terry Gilliam played the fewest characters because most of the time he was um, off doing animations yeah. that ended up proving like really important to, to every episode and then the, the show overall. Um, so he usually played the least, but he also played like the some of the most memorable ones, usually the just the dirtiest ones, yeah. like the, the character in the back. You're like, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> that was Terry Gilliam. Yeah, and he felt very much like out of his world. He was in awe of the other guys. You know, he knew he was like, you know, I'm nowhere near you, dude. So I'll do my weird animations. And if you need like a crazy leper in an episode, (laughs) I'm your guy. I'm the leper. (laughs) Um, Michael Palin is probably my favorite. 
But that's kind of like low-hanging fruit to say Michael Palin's your favorite Python because he was pretty much, uh, everyone agrees that he was probably the best actor on the show. Yeah, he was, he was probably the most broad and accessible comedian with like raw comedic talents. And um, well, who did I say last week? Graham Chapman? Was your favorite? Yeah. I think you did, yeah. I think I've changed my mind. Oh, okay. But when you watch enough Monty Python, and I think that's kind of the point that you're going to get through this whole thing, there's an all-star like in every episode, in every sketch, mm-hmm. and you kind of end up changing your mind a lot. But I'm on Eric Idle right now. Big oh, time. are you? Yeah, he's yeah. pretty great. He's, people are like, yeah, that's what yeah, I was going to say. That's a muttering. Man, he was good. Uh, still is. So um, they're very famous for playing, like you said, all the characters playing the women. Uh, some of the best laughs you will get watching Flying Circus or when Terry Jones plays like the crack, the crack, the old English ladies. Right. Or like Brian's mom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in Life of Brian. Did you finally watch it? I did. I watched it again this morning. Yeah, it's a good movie. I woke up at like 7.30 and watched Life of Brian. Do you want Life right. of Brian? <laughs> I could pay for this. Yeah, I did have that moment, actually. <laughs> Ordered room service. It was wonderful. <laughs> so uh, they all kind of fell into their specialties a bit, though. Like Terry Jones would, um, he could play like the middle class gentleman and the, the great, you know, like old English bag lady type. Uh, Cleese and Chapman were the tallest. John Cleese was 6'5". Graham Chapman was 6'2". So they often played like authority figures or barristers or policemen or, you know, sort of the toughs. Uh, they were a little more imposing. Palin could do anything he wanted at any time. He was probably the most versatile. And then Eric Idle, he did the feminine ladies really well. And um, Salesman, he was good at salesman. Yeah. He was, for me, the, the when it comes to like wordplay, he was kind of the best sure. at that. But they all had their strengths. And, and who was it, Gilliam, that said they were like a molecule? Yeah, they fit together like a molecule. Yeah. Like if you if you take any one, and, and as we'll see, actually, a couple have been taken from the group here or there over time, um, it, it's just not the same. It's, it just doesn't quite work. And it's not because there was a star or a leader. And that's probably one of the strengths of Monty Python is there wasn't a star or a leader. It was just this random assemblage of guys including an animator like who would have guessed like yes we, we've got to have the animator too yeah. um, that came together to form this thing that had never been seen before and really hasn't been seen since yeah so it um, it ran <clears throat> the Flying Circus ran for four seasons only uh, Cleese left after season three and like we said the fourth season was just called Monty Python I think it only had about half a dozen episodes and for Python fans, everyone kind of says, like, yeah, that fourth season, you take Cleese away, it's just not the same. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't hit in America until later, uh, thanks to syndication. And in 1974, uh, in Dallas, Texas, of all places, on uh, KEPA? Is anyone from Dallas? No? <laughs> I'm going to say KEPA, because I can't <laughs> and, read my own you handwriting. Can get away with it. <laughs> uh, that's where it debuted in the United States, and then it got picked up all over the country here and there. I remember on Georgia on uh, GPTV. Yep. When I was a kid, I was like, you know, 10, 11 years old, and I was exposed to British comedy by watching Benny Hill, Benny Hill. and Flying Circus. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then later on, I got into other things like Faulty Towers and Black Adder and all that good stuff. But, um, yeah, it was all of a sudden Americans caught on, and so they said, well, we should make movies then. Right, and, and Americans caught on, you said 1974, right? Yeah. That was the, the last year that they had a TV show. They'd been trying to like crack the American market for years, and it just wasn't happening. And they'd basically given up hope. And then once it started to catch on in America, and they already had a pretty good cult following in the UK, um, once that American component came in, they were like, yeah, we should, we should keep doing this. Let's try a movie. And they already had one movie under their belt. Um, it was called And Now for Something completely different right yeah and it was it was a little weird what they did was they took um literally took sketches that they had already done in front of the live studio audience for flying circus they recreated those sketches on a studio stage um and it was a sketch movie it was like kentucky fried movie or something like that and um it you know it didn't work so great uh i think their best movies were the ones where they actually had a, a story to the thing um well, we'll get to the movies. Everyone knows what they are. Sure. It, it didn't do very well. No. It and, wasn't and, a huge hit. And it was made, again, for America. It'd be like, hey, American audiences, check this out. So it was yet another reason they'd kind of given up on America. But So America comes into the fold, and they're like, yes, let's try to make a movie. Yeah, and Cleese had left, but he was obviously in the movie. So he didn't leave bitterly. He said that he was, um, I'll go ahead and read his quote here. He said that he wanted to be a part of the group, but he didn't want to be married to them. 
because that's what I felt like. I began to lose any kind of control over my life. And I was not forceful enough in saying no. And he also had a couple of things he wasn't wild about in the show. And he felt like he wasn't being listened to. So he ended up leaving, but was still like friends with the guys and wanted to do the the movies for sure. Sure. He also um, said that he was the one who had to work with Graham Chapman during um, Graham Chapman's alcoholic phase. He said that um, he was writing with uh, Graham Chapman, um, who I didn't know this. He was... um, uh, he was gay and he was out. And this is like 1969, early 1970s. It hadn't been very long before that the UK had chemically castrated Alan Turing for being gay. And this guy's out and, and for gay rights even, actually. Yeah. Graham Chapman, that was part of his philosophy. He was like, you know what, let, let's put it right in their faces Yeah. and see what they think about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Cleese was like, he, uh, Graham Chapman was, uh, he had a huge, huge problem with alcohol. Um, uh, during the time that they were making Monty Python, and, and Cleese was the one who had to work with them because they were buds from the Cambridge days. Um, and he said that combined with the group not listening to him and feeling like they were, it was taking over his life, he's like, I'm out. So after the third season, Cleese left. But that was about this, the time when um, they decided that they were going to go try to make um, the Holy Grail. That's right. Monty Which Python is, and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, anyone ever seen that little movie? <laughs> I think joke for joke, like Blazing Saddles and Holy Grail are in like an eternal race to see like pound for pound what the funniest movie of all time is, sure. in my opinion. Yeah. So you like Holy Grail more than Life of Brian? Yeah. Yeah, same here. I mean, I love Life of Brian, but just the sheer amount of laughs and jokes in Holy Grail is right. astounding. Yeah. It's astounding. Yeah. So uh, they had a tiny little budget for Holy Grail. They you know, didn't have money being thrown their way. And uh, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam co-directed, which is a little weird. And uh, Terry Jones later would say that I think like, I kind of annoyed Gilliam. So we ended up alternating days. Like Monday, Terry Jones would direct. Tuesday, Terry Gilliam would direct. Sort of a weird way to go about things. A terrible, terrible way but to it direct a movie. <laughs> uh, and they filmed in Scotland, and uh, it was just a problematic shoot. The weather in Scotland, if you've ever been there, is uh, it's just like it is here. It's wonderful. Um, it was very much a hardship shooting in Scotland. Uh, they had a bunch of problems with the budget. They didn't have what they needed. Um, no, but but that led to some pretty awesome jokes. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. By nature, so the idea of... Um, King Arthur riding around on an invisible horse while his, his squire follows him clapping together coconuts. That was because they didn't have any money for horses for the movie. So they were forced to come up with this awesome joke. Which, I mean, it's funny when you first see it, and then it's funny when you're like sitting there eating spaghetti two days later, and you like think about how nuts that would be in real life, you know? But that came out of these budget constraints that they had. Uh, they were also had trouble kind of you know raising money and I think finishing funds. So they uh, they had some very famous uh, bands invest in the movie. Uh, George Harrison had always been a champion. He later would invest. He actually he created a production company to make Life of Brian. But um, for Holy Grail, uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, yeah right. <laughs> Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and Genesis. All invested 20,000. Why is Genesis getting a laugh? <laughs> this is like Peter Gabriel Genesis, not Invisible Touch. Hey, hey, hey. There's nothing wrong with Phil Collins Genesis, man. Nothing wrong. Sorry. I can have you thrown out. <laughs> I'm up on stage. I knew you were going to say that. I was like, I've, I bet I've offended Josh with that. It's, it's, I think he gets a bad rap unfairly. Sure he does. Well, they were, he's not like Sammy Hagar. Well, you want to know something funny? My wife Emily loves Van Hagar more than David Lee Roth Van Halen. Yeah. And she's proud of it. She's like, oh man, put on uh, that song right now. We're talking, about, <laughs> we're talking about world issues and like the world's not right. And uh, yeah. And I was like, or we could, I hear Janet Varney laughing in the background. <laughs> Best laugh in the world. Uh, yeah, so anyway, Van Hagar and... Oh, never mind. Yeah. Uh, gonna Genesis quick starring story. Phil Collins. I think that's where we left off. That's right. It was Phil Collins who got everybody else to invest. Probably so. It's always that's, that's a made-up fact. <laughs> uh, in the movie, uh, Michael Palin plays the most roles. 
he, tw- uh, he plays 12 different characters. He played Sir Galahad. He played the soldier who argues about swallows. Remember that great scene? He plays uh, Dennis, the, the peasant. He plays a mud villager, uh, singing Camelot Knight, the right head of the three-headed knight, uh, the king of the swamp castle, a wedding guest at the swamp castle, uh, Brother Maynard's assistant. <laughs> oh, Brother Maynard. Uh, he was the main knight who says, me, and he played one of the uh, French taunting knights. Uh, Terry Gilliam played the, f- I'm sorry, Graham Chapman actually played the fewest. Because he was King Arthur, and as in Life of Brian, they didn't want to overuse him as the lead character. Sure. So he played uh, King Arthur, the voice of God, uh, the hiccuping guard, and the middlehead of the three-headed knight. So that's Holy Grail. Their next movie, and then from this point forward, Holy Grail is just like a, a, a hit, right? Everybody it's the loved Holy it. Grail, right? Of comedy, exactly. If you will. Um, so they're like, okay, we'll go off and do our own things. Because one of the one of the things that uh, characterized these guys as individuals was they always had their own work, and it didn't necessarily have anything to do with comedy. Like Eric Idle, all he does is comedic acting, but he's got his own stuff too. Um, Michael Palin got into making travel documentaries for the BBC. That was his thing. Um, Terry Jones f- opened a brewery, Penrose Brewery in Hertfordshire, which uh, I'm saying how it's spelled. So in in the UK, it's it's probably like um, Chattingham or something. Is how you pronounce it. <laughs> so uh, and then John Cleese strangely formed a company that created um, training videos for for business. Not funny ones, from what I understand, either. Was he in those? I don't know. I don't there's know. no way if he was in those that they weren't funny, even right. if he was even trying to be trying. serious. He's like, please, stop laughing. <laughs> well, I'd love to see that. This is very serious. It's about industrial safety. <laughs> the emergency exits all behind and across. <laughs> like, Well, he was kind of deadpan like that. That yeah. was sort of his thing. Yeah, whether he liked it or not, he was funny. Uh and of course, that's much later. Uh, their second, or I guess their third movie, their second narrative film in mm-hmm. 1979 was The Life of Brian, which I watched this morning. Uh, to me, Terry Jones kind of steals that movie as Brian's mother. Yeah. Uh, every scene he is in, he just walks away with. Uh, and that movie came about uh, from a press conference from Holy Grail. Uh, people were asking, like, what's your next thing going to be? What's your next movie? And as a joke, Eric Idle said, uh, Jesus Christ, lust for glory. <laughs> And that sort of got the seeds started that they should maybe go to biblical times yeah. since they did medieval times. Right. So when they started writing this movie, um, Jesus actually became a smaller and smaller and smaller figure, a character, I should say, in the movie. Um, and it became about Brian, this guy who's mistaken for the Messiah at the same time he's born on the same day as Jesus. Um, but he's most decidedly not the Messiah. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeing. It's still hilarious. It's just Holy Grail, Life of Brian, in my opinion. Full frontal in that movie, too. Yeah. 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 Grant yeah, Chapman. He's, he's, yeah. Yep. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing more to be said about it. Nope. So because it was about... Um, Jesus, even though it wasn't at all about Jesus, um, of course it got banned in several places by people who hadn't even seen the movie, had no idea really what it was about. That's what we do in America. Right. And Norway. Norway and seven American states banned it. And you can probably take a pretty good stab at which American states banned it. It's like the South and then something random like Idaho. Right. (laughs) And then featuring Norway. I bet Georgia probably sadly banned it. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, well, anytime you do a comedic take on biblical times, you're gonna you're gonna be in trouble. Sure, but you if know? you watch the movie, it's it's not in, it's no, I, it's not offensive. You know, like uh, I'm not very touchy about stuff like that. But I was watching it, and I'm like, I, this actually isn't offensive at any point, really. You're not easily offended, though. No, unless you talk <laughs> about um, Phil Collins. Unless you bring up <laughs> Phil Collins, that's my button. So, uh, and I love to push it. 
so the final film they made was uh, called Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, uh, 1983. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. There's That's one right. other spectacular fact about the life of Bryant. It won the jury award at the Cannes Film Festival in 1979. That's true. I have an arrow, an asterisk, and three exclamation points pointing to that sentence. Well, Meaning of Life did too then. Or did you mix it up? <laughs> I mixed it up. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. The asterisk didn't work. <laughs> you needed one more arrow. In 1983, they released Monty Poppins' Meaning of Life, which won the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Can you believe it? <laughs> And it was, by this time, these were like financial and critical successes. Like, everyone was on board the train. And it was another uh, sketch movie. Um, very funny. I like The Meaning of Life. But to me, still, the other narrative films were a little better. Uh, but, of course, the very classic um, Every Sperm is Sacred, which is very funny because if you watch Monty Python, nothing was sacred about anything. They would take on Hitler and cannibalism and race and uh, gay rights and nothing was sacred except every sperm. Right. <laughs> Apparently. There's this really great article um, that a lot of this is based on. Um, it's called The Beatles of Comedy by a guy named David Free and he points out that it's sad that the word irreverent is is overused these days because the, the literal sense of irreverent is the best way to describe Python. That they didn't have automatic respect for anything, which is a pretty good description, if you ask me. So uh, Meaning of Life was the last official project they ever did together uh, for a while. Uh, they, in 19, um, I guess in the late 80s, they got together and did a couple of live shows. Uh, they did one at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and then a couple of years ago, finally did one well, they owed money for Spamalot, the great Broadway show. <laughs> they were sued by one of the producers of Holy Grail and uh, because of Spamalot and were very famously owed about 800,000 pounds. They owed him 8,000 8, yeah, yeah. pounds. Yeah, they, they lost. And um, they came out and said, you know, we're going to get back together and do some shows for the money so we can pay off this lawsuit. And everyone was delighted that they were going to do these 10 shows. They were. One of their first reunion appearances in Aspen, they were being interviewed by Robert Klein, and Graham Chapman wasn't there because Graham Chapman died in 1989, um, one day before the 20th anniversary of the debut of the Flying Circus, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, he just couldn't hang on for one more day. And, uh, yeah, very sad. Um, and so uh, Graham Chapman's not there, but they actually brought his ashes in an urn, and he's on the table. During the interview, so... For those of you listening to this in the future at home, uh, the ashes were kicked over. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Ted Danson thought it was really funny. Yeah, I was like, is that Ted Danson? <laughs> totally Ted Danson. Yeah. That guy's good. Have you seen Fargo Season 2? Yes. Mwah! <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You get money for that or anything? You're just plugging it. Oh, I'm just a fan. I got you. <laughs> Love Danson. Uh, but that kind of like typifies Monty Python. Like nothing was sacred. They would take their dear, dear friend, uh, and well, obviously they weren't his ashes. Let's get real. But uh, they would pretend like they kick him over on stage for, <laughs> right. for a joke. Right. And it worked. It did. So uh, they performed at the O2 Arena in England uh, two years ago. They did those ten shows to get out of debt, and uh, that was the last time they performed together. Uh, they say that's it. They're not going to do it again. Yeah. And uh, you know they were together for. Short years on TV, the Beatles of comedy. I know. It's pretty amazing. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how they worked. Um, there have been a lot of interviews with sort of the inside story with the guys, and they kind of all roundly say it was a very democratic process. Um, Palin comes out and says, you know, Cleese was a little bit of the leader. He was a little forceful. His presence, he was a large man. Uh, he could be very convincing when he wanted something. But he said, but in the end, it was very democratic. Like, no one really wanted to be the leader. Right. Uh, Terry Jones kind of considered himself a bit of a leader just because he directed so much. Like, he directed, he co-directed um, The Holy Grail, but he totally directed Life of Brian yeah. and The Meaning of Life. Um, so, 
even still, I don't think he, he actually saw himself as like the leader of Monty Python. He was probably just the one who could get the attention of the other ones long enough to direct them, right? Yeah, and they would fight and argue, like, you know, get any group of creative folks together, and you're going to argue. But they said it was never about big things. They would argue about, like, the size of the chair and the sketch, <laughs> right. uh, but not, like, the big picture stuff, yeah. which and, is pretty cool. And then everybody kind of had their own little niche that they brought to the table, like um, John and Graham uh, were uh, funny, but also very angry and kind of bitter. Like, you could tell that they were... Like that, the traditional English schoolboys who parents had like sent them off to school at age like eight and hadn't seen them since, you know, kind of thing. Um, and then uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin were a little more like surreal, a little more whimsical. And then Eric Idle was very verbal. They said, "Yeah, he's my guy." Yeah, he's good. So good. Uh, so one of the big uh, factors in their success was the freedom that they had with the BBC. Um, but it was sort of a mixed bag. They had a lot of freedom to do what they wanted, but it is the BBC and it is on television. So they would often battle them about words they could say uh, with the censors, and of course. And um, they were famously censored for using the word masturbation. Yeah, they were. And the uh, the um, what was it? Masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, in the. Uh... <laughs> Explain, Chuck. In the summarized Proust competition, there was a, a game show that was you had to you had to summarize a Proust poem or a Proust short story in uh, like sixty seconds or less. So they had this whole game show, and so they said uh, strangling animals, golf, and masturbation were his hobbies, right? And so originally the BBC was like, you can't say that. Well, they recorded it anyway, and then the BBC went behind them and um, edited it out. So in the original. Uh, version that was aired it was strangling animals which they left in golf like a dead air for a second and then a big laugh <laughs> and uh, they, they said when they went back and watched it they were like this doesn't make any sense yeah. like, what's, what's so funny about golf <laughs> so um, as far as their aim uh, it kind of depends on who you talk to Terry Jones very much said that they were trying to subvert the establishment and they were trying to make a statement and uh, try to make some noise. Uh, Michael Palin said, you know, I think that's kind of overrated. We were just trying to be funny as we could be. So I think it was probably, you know, as always, the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle there mm-hmm. with what they were trying to get accomplished. Yeah. Uh, they also said that radio uh, was a big influence because they were from the generation where uh, they, none of them, you know, they didn't have TV until they were like 12 or 13 years old. So that theater of the mind that you get when you would listen to the radio as a kid, and uh, I know that not many people in this room can probably imagine that. But now we have podcasts that do that. Right, yeah. Which is wonderful. No, that really struck me that that was one of their big um, creative inspirations was being raised on radio, you know, um, that that they were forced to use their imaginations and that they managed to figure out how to translate that into TV. It's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, I mentioned, like, Tenacious T and Kids in the Hall and these shows that would come along that would have, and Mr. Show especially, where each show would have sort of this weird theme that ran through it, but it was never like a statement. I mean, it would be like uh, I watched an episode the other night of Flying Circus where the theme was just a a pig. And like in the very beginning, uh, Graham Chapman just sits down and you hear this, oink! And then they cut to a chalkboard of a bunch of uh, pigs drawn and they just X out another one. (laughs) And then just randomly through the episode, there would be a pig here or there or someone else would sit on a pig and they would cut it and do another one. meant nothing at all. But that and the animation, like then a pig would drop on, you know, Jesus' head and there would be a fart noise in the animation. And so they had this weird kind of theme, like that one was the pig show right? or whatever. And you very much see that in like Mr. Show. They sort of had these little thematic elements that tied it together. One other thing Mr. Show did uh, very well that um, you can kind of say Python started was like blending uh, one one sketch into another. Yeah. Like one would not end before the other one began. They just kind of cross paths. And um, that was, I think, pretty much they pioneered that. Yeah, and, and it could be done in a lot of ways. Uh, sometimes they literally ran into each other. Like you would have a thing with Medieval Knights and he would walk to the next set, which was like a modern-day living room. <laughs> or it would end, uh, like I saw one where they did a little snapshot to close the the, the sketch and then they would pull back from that snapshot, and it's just a picture on the wall 
in the next sketch. Right. So they just had really clever ways of sort of tying it all together. It was very cool. They'd also sometimes run the credits in the middle of the show. Right. <laughs> but and then not run them again at the end. Like, that's where they went, in the middle of the show. Yeah, or John Cleese would, uh, it would like, the show would stop as it, if it had been canceled, and Cleese would come on as a, as a supposed member of the BBC to apologize for the content of the show right. in the middle of the show. Right. And then someone would just come in, like, lasso him off stage, mm-hmm. and they go right into the next sketch. Yep. Very cool. So uh, there are also uh, anachronisms, uh, masters at juxtaposition. Sure. Um, you know, everyone who's seen Holy Grail, it ends when modern-day police show up <laughs> and arrest the, not only the actors in the big battle scene, but the cast and crew, and they would shut the movie down. So they would throw weird things like that in there, like the uh, Picasso thing. Yeah, Picasso painting a, a painting, riding a bicycle while he's on the uh, the highway, the A twenty nine highway, just randomly. Yeah, or the Spanish Inquisition yeah. being in a modern day household. Right, um, and they were extremely smart, very very well educated dudes. Um, but if they if they were doing a project, they would also like do more research. They didn't just automatically know everything. And some of their best jokes came out of that research. Like when they were researching um, for the Holy Grail, uh, they they found that um, one of the common tactics during medieval sieges was taunting the people who were trying to siege the castle. Right. So that was actually done, apparently verbatim, in history. <laughs> Uh, the other thing they learned in their research was that they did used to launch animals. Uh, we actually covered this in, I think, our Castles episode yeah, yeah. many years ago, yeah. uh, where they would launch animals. The idea, of course, they didn't cover this in the uh, in the movie, but the idea was that they would be diseased animals, so it would actually have an effect other than just being really weird and disconcerting <laughs> to see a cow come flying at you. But it would be like a cow that was very sick and would get people sick when it exploded all over everyone. Yeah. Really gross. And lead to a plague in the castle, (laughs) ending the siege. You know, Josh, starting your own business can be really difficult, Mm -hmm. but developing your online presence doesn't have to be, right? Right, because Google and Squarespace have teamed up to give small business owners what they need to succeed online, Chuckers, a custom domain, business email, and a beautiful website all in one place. That's right. With Google and Squarespace, you can stand out, look professional, and increase your team's productivity. When you create your Squarespace business website or online store, you're going to receive a free year of business email and professional tools all from Google. It's that simple. All you do is just visit squarespace.com slash Google and start your free trial. And while you're there, be sure to use our special GWIZ offer code WORKS, W-O-R-K-S, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Google and Squarespace. Make it professional. Make it beautiful. Uh, they felt no social dread. Uh, they were just like they were often described as little boys. Uh, this article uh, from the Atlantic said they not only weren't afraid, they didn't know they should be afraid. Mm-hmm. So they kind of had this sweet, naive quality about them. Like, what's what's wrong with doing mm-hmm. a sketch about Hitler and the Pope? <laughs> is that we should we not do that? Right. I don't think it ever occurred to him that yeah. that was off limits. There's a there's a really good example of that um, in the the sketch called the Undertaker sketch, which I think is probably the funniest sketch they made. Um, let me set it up though. Uh, John Cleese is this dude whose mother has recently died, and he comes to the funeral parlor where Graham Chapman is the Undertaker, and um, Graham Chapman kind of runs down the list of things they can do to John Cleese's mother, right? Like, um, they can bury her, but if she's not dead yet, she'll be eaten up by worms and beetles, and it's quite shocking. Um, or they can they can just toss her in the Thames or something like that, right? Yeah. And then uh, John Cleese, is, he's a little shocked, but um, uh, it turns out he has his mother in a burlap sack next to him. Like, he dragged her body to the funeral parlor, right? So... What they're playing there is God Save the Queen, and everyone is reverently standing around. They stopped rioting because they started playing God Save the Queen, and any good Britisher will just immediately stop whatever they're doing and like kind of piously stand there. The reason that they did God Save the Queen was because Monty Python, all the guys in it, had this this 
deep fantasy that one day the Queen would turn on the BBC and accidentally watch their show. And so they really hoped that the one thing that she tuned into was the Undertaker sketch, like the foulest sketch that they ever came up with. So that, that's kind of a nod to that, that desire. Yeah, and if you, if you watch that sketch and you're uh, uninformed, you hear people you know, start to boo and hiss a little bit, and then, uh, let's have something decent. That's disgusting. And you're like, oh, my God, the audience is turning on them. Like, they've gone too far. Uh, it was all planned, of course. The BB- saying it was weird that the audience interrupted the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. Look who it is, everyone. It's Kevin Pollack. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Wow. <laughs> Did that just happen? <laughs> Something's in the water. What's he doing here? I don't know. That's a really good question. He's in the wrong place, yep. clearly. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kevin Pollack. I've been waiting to say that for years. <laughs> so uh, the BBC hated the Undertaker sketch for obvious reasons. They did not want it to air, but they said, all right, we'll let you guys air it if we can put these plants in the audience to boo and hiss and yell and eventually come down and riot very awkwardly at the end. So that was the compromise. And they're like, yeah, yeah sure. pretty awkward. As long as the queen watches, right? Yeah. So, uh, sorry, where was I? Kevin Pollack really threw me off. <laughs> oh, when they got to movies, um, you know, they never were allowed to cuss on the air. And when they got to movies, they could obviously do what they wanted to. But for the most part, they still refrained from actual curse words. Um, well, Life of Brian has a few F-bombs. Yeah, a few. But that's it. Right. Like three or it, four. It works. They don't stand out. No, not much. But they, they found one part where um, something did stand out to them. They actually went back after they shot the movie and, and dubbed in, um, instead of the C word, I'll let you guys figure that one out, um, they, they put in klutz instead. John Cleese calls um, Graham Chapman a klutz yeah. um, because he screwed something up. I don't remember what it was. But they went back, not because of a censor, they went back and, um, and edited it out. Edit. That's a really difficult sentence. Edited it out? That. Yeah. Um, because they thought that it kind of detracted from the, the overall joke, the larger picture. Yeah. So um, they, were, uh, they were self-reverential. How about that? Yeah, I don't know about reverential, but they didn't curse much. Um, we've got a couple of tidbits to end here. Yeah, well, they, um, you know, not only were they influential in the world of comedy, but they, um, they're, I mean, they're part of pop culture now. Like, people say things like the knights who say ne and uh, the Spanish, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's, <laughs> right. it's worked its way into the fabric and the lexicon yeah. of pop culture. Um, Python-esque is actually a word that's in the Oxford Dictionary now. It's official. It's a real word. Spam, like spam email. Uh-huh. Named after the famous sketch. I wish we had the spam sketch. Well, you should have given me a heads up. I know. You guys have seen the spam sketch, right? Where they come in and everything spam, spam, spam on the menu. One of their great wordplay sketches. But my favorite part of that sketch, not the weird fact that there's Vikings in there, or the weird fact that it stops halfway through and there's a history lesson from Michael Palin, but it is when the sketch starts. Are you looking it up? Uh, They, for no reason at all, lower... uh, the two main, uh, I think it's, it's Graham Chapman and... Sorry. No. <laughs> they lower them into the scene from wires uh, in a sitting position into their chair for no reason whatsoever. It's just a diner scene, and then they just are lowered in sitting like this and, and then sit in their chair. And then it starts. Yeah, and then it starts. <laughs> and that's like the genius of Monty Python yeah. for no reason whatsoever. Um, and Python is a, it's a coding language, too. Named yeah. after Monty Python. There's actually a fossil snake, a fossil river snake that lived 100 million years ago um, in what is now Australia called uh, Monty Pythonoides River Slayensis. Nice work. It's named after Monty Python. <laughs> uh, and like you said, the guys all went on to do their own thing. Uh, they were together a very short time, made yeah. a huge, huge impact. Um, what do you say? Palin did travel docs, yeah, among other things. Of course, fish called Wanda. We all saw and loved that. Uh, they still enjoy being together. Um, I think John Cleese's wife said, you know, she loves her husband, and she's never seen him have as much fun and laugh as much as when he's with the boys, with oh, the yeah. lads. Yeah. yeah, it's very sweet. It is sweet. Uh, there's a very sad thing I should mention. 
Just oh, yeah. yesterday. Uh, wait, to, wait, don't you think we should save this for the very end? To really bring him down? <laughs> right. No, I'll wedge it in and we'll try and make you laugh again. Uh, Terry Jones just announced yesterday he is uh, suffering from a, a rare form of dementia, and it's super sad. Um, his, his mates have known about it for a while, and they've all kept it quiet. But um, it's a form of dementia where it, it renders him unable to speak. So they officially came out with the announcement just yesterday and said, you know, Terry Jones won't be doing interviews anymore. And all the guys are making statements about that they've known about this for a while. It's been very sad to see. Uh, and now something funny? Sure. Now something completely different. Right. <laughs> so uh, if you go to a U.K. funeral, um, you are probably very likely to be hit with the song Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, actually. Uh, there was a survey done in 2014 um, of like 30,000 British funerals that found that that was the number one song played to them. And it beat out... Invisible Touch? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That'd be great. It beat out um, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, which is, can you imagine, how offensive is that? Yeah. Being at a funeral and being subjected to that. Yeah. Just be like... Yeah. You would rise from the grave and gag. And it's not, I've got nothing against Celine Dion or even that song, but that plus a funeral is just, bleh. I got something against her and that song. I'll say it. You're, you're a music snob. <laughs> I am. Uh, so we'll finish with this little tidbit. Um, we might not know about Monty Python, and it might not have never made it to the United States, uh, if not for one Terry Jones, because back in the day, uh, it was common practice in the BBC and I guess in the United States too to erase over tapes of shows. Yeah, because they were expensive. Yeah, they were pricey. Mm-hmm. And someone at the BBC literally called Terry Jones and said they're about to erase over Flying Circus. Get down here now. Yeah. And what did he do? Terry Jones left the phone <laughs> hanging and the guy was like, hello, hello? Yeah. Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> Terry! And uh, little did he know, Terry Jones was already on his way there. Showed up while the guy was still on the phone shouting Terry into the phone. This is like 20, 30 minutes later. Terry Jones grabs the tapes, goes and pays for his own um, blank tapes, makes copies of them, and the the legacy was secured. That's right. So uh, we have Terry Jones to thank for that legacy. And And this this unnamed person from the BBC who thought to call them rather than just going ahead and, and, and erasing the tapes. That's right. You got anything else? No, do you guys want to sit here and watch Monty Python clips for like a half an hour? <laughs> yeah. See if you can find the spam. Seriously. I, I found the spam. It's three and a half minutes long. Uh, yeah, perfect. Oh, oh, great. Okay. We got three and a half minutes, right? Yeah. All right. That'll be a great way to close it out. Those of you who have to PTS. Okay. We bring you to close out this Stuff You Should Know live episode at LA Podcast Fest, the Monty Python. Spam sketch. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 